this morning we conclude this section on judgment that we have been going through the last few weeks as we come to uh, the parable of the sheep and the goats. And so our reading is Matthew 25, beginning at verse 31. We'll read through the end of the chapter in verse 46. Uh, Let's give our careful attention to the reading of God's word. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne, and before him will be gathered all the nations... And he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And then he will say on those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison? And did not minister to you? And then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment. But the righteous into eternal life. This has been the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Let us pray. Lord, would the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be pleasing to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Lord, would you do a work that only you can do through the preaching of your word and creating new life and growing us, not just in knowledge, but more and more into the image of Jesus, your son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. This passage leaves us with a pretty obvious question, doesn't it? A hard question or or questions, a question that that maybe has haunted a few of us in this room. Am I a sheep or am I a goat? Will Jesus put me on his right hand or will he put me on his left hand? It leads to the scariest questions of them all, have I done enough? Will I be saved to heaven, or will I be condemned to hell? I mean, have you been there? I've been there. Am I going to make it? We talk often about being saved by grace through faith, but man, is, is, is Jesus challenging that idea here? Is my hope, my eternal destiny wrapped up, excuse me, wrapped up in Jesus, ultimately determining that I have done enough? Did any of you ever listen to Keith Green? I went through a Keith Green phase when I was younger. If you don't know who Keith Green was, uh, he was a hippie who was uh, saved by Christ, and and he was a super gifted piano player, musician, singer, songwriter. He he died tragically pretty young in a a plane crash. Uh, But he had some really songs that still speak to me, songs that I still think are are, are pretty pretty awesome. Uh, But the song I'm going to bring up is called The Sheep and the Goats, and it's not so good. (laughs) It's one of the the least good Keith Green songs you will hear. It's about an eight-minute-long meandering of this parable 
where he's negotiating between the goats and, and, and Jesus, and they're saying, like, well, when did we not feed you? When did we not clothe you? Are you hungry now? We can get you some food now. And the song ends dramatically. Keith stops playing, and he says, my friends, the only difference between the sheep and the goats, boom. I lost it. <laughs> totally lost it. Okay, here it is. I got it. I told you, it's not that great of a song. I had to like, listen to it for this sermon. The only difference, boom, there's the music. Right, That was so dramatic, too. That was so good. It's about what they did or didn't do. The only difference, he says, is, is between what they did and didn't do. I think he's wrong. I don't think that's what this passage is about. The final story of judgment that Jesus tells us, this is the last sermon he preaches in Matthew, is not about whether you have done enough to go to heaven. It's more than anything about the supremacy of Jesus in all things, the supremacy of Jesus over all of the creation, the supremacy of Jesus over all of humanity, over all who will stand before him. And let's affirm that every human being will stand before King Jesus as he is enthroned and they will face him. And so what matters chiefly, what this passage is about, is your relationship to him. The question to walk away with this morning is not, have I done enough? Because the answer is no. You haven't done enough. The only ones in the story who think they maybe have done enough are who? The goats. The goats maybe think they've done enough. So the most important questions are, do I know him? And, and as we'll see, like really know the greatness of his saving mercy and live my life out of that amazing reality for the very fact that we cannot do enough. Now I've broken this passage down into three points to basically uh, walk through this familiar but scary story. And, and what we're intended to grasp is what I've highlighted, highlighted. And these are three basic ideas from scripture. We, we, we talk about them. We know them. It's the glory of Jesus. That's fair enough. It's the judgment of Jesus. That's what the passage is about. But it's also about the salvation that we need. All right, it's the glory, the judgment, and the salvation of Jesus. Again, the most profound element of this parable is how Jesus speaks of himself. This is the climax of Jesus' self-revelation. It's, it's common to hear those who reject Christ and Christianity, is, they'll, they'll say this particular line. They'll say, you know, Jesus was probably an amazing guy. He was probably charismatic. He was probably a great teacher. But there's no way that he identified himself as, as, as Lord, right? Um, C.S. Lewis had the, had the great line that said, you know, you, you can't walk away from the Gospels without thinking that Jesus is anything but a, a liar, a lunatic, or he is Lord because of the way that he confesses himself. And oftentimes, you'll have people say that's a weak argument um, because we only have the Jesus that the apostles preached. Well, that's the point, isn't it? We only have the preached Christ. There is no Jesus that we have access to that is outside of the New Testament. There's no Jesus that we have access to that isn't the preached Christ. And so what we have with the preached Christ is one who leaves no debate for who he is. That's why that argument isn't too bad. The only Jesus we have access to can't just be a decent guy. He either is a liar, he either is a lunatic, or he is the Lord. I mean, listen to our passage. He begins in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in glory. Now, throughout the Gospels, Jesus' preferred self-designation was Son of Man. And there are two reasons for that. One is that it hides his glory. 
Every guy in this room, every boy, every man in this room, we are all what? Sons of men. Right? That's, that's a pretty basic designation. We are all sons of men. In the book of Ezekiel, the prophet is called often by the Lord, hey, son of man, which basically sounds like, hey, guy, hey, dude. And Ezekiel, here he comes. Son of man, come on, you've got some work to do. But while it speaks to the hiddenness of Jesus' glory, it also speaks to the reality of his glory. And we get that from Daniel 7. Daniel 7, the prophet Daniel has these visions. They, they come to him at night while he's laying in bed. And in one of these visions, Daniel sees one like a son of man. What does that mean? Just a guy. And he's on a cloud. That's the vehicle of the divine. That's the vehicle of God. So this, this man is on a cloud, which is the vehicle of God. And he goes to the ancient of days, the Lord God, Yahweh. And the Son of Man receives from the Ancient of Days all power and glory. So Jesus is pulling from Daniel 7. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and the angels are with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Now Christ is the eternally begotten Son of God, is equal with the Father and the Spirit in power and glory. He is not less than the Father. He is co-substantial with the Father. He is equal with the Father. And yet, this picture is of Jesus as the Son of Man. One of us. Our elder brother. Our better second Adam. Our better representative. Our better covenant head. Our faithful covenant representative. And this Son of Man will have received all power and glory as our mediator. As our redeemer. As, as the savior of his people. And so when the son of man comes. I think you could also read. Or you could also keep in mind. When the man who is worthy comes. Who is able to ascend the hill of the Lord? This guy. This guy can ascend the hill of the Lord. And he receives all power and glory. Surrounded by heaven's hosts. Jesus says that he will come. Not only as a son of man. But as a shepherd. In Ezekiel 34, God looks at Israel and he only finds bad shepherds leading the people astray. The end of Matthew's gospel, the last few weeks, we've seen how the bad shepherds are still there. The bad shepherds are still the ones leading Israel. And so in Ezekiel 34, God says, enough. I will rescue the flock. Oh, it's the gospel, isn't it? I will do it. I will rescue the flock. And how will he do this? I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them and be their shepherd. Now, by this point in history, King David's long dead. King David, who defeated Goliath, the, the, the one who had a heart after God, he's long dead. So what's Ezekiel talking about? What's the Lord through Ezekiel talking about? He's talking about one like David, a true faithful shepherd king. Matthew 25, Jesus is the shepherd, which means he is the king that will say, you come to my right hand. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom that has been promised to you, prepared for you. Jesus is a shepherd king who has come to bless God's people and punish God's enemies. He's come to set all of the nations right. I mean, what Old Testament passage do we go to think about kingship? There are just they're, they're, they're so many options. Let's just grab Psalm 2. He will break the wicked nations with a rod of iron, and he will bless those who take refuge in him. Now, what's the point of all of this? The entire scene is all about Jesus. He is front and center. The whole description of the final judgment revolves around Jesus. The end of the world finds its meaning in him. He is the sole judge of the world. Every angel will surround him. 
and worship him and glorify him. Every human being that this world has ever produced will stand before him. Jesus has the last word. And in our world of chaos, is there anything more comforting than that? Is there anything that gives you more consolation when you look at the insanity of this world and the brokenness and the suffering and the sorrow to know that Jesus is the shepherd of the world? Is there one who is more trustworthy with that role? Is there one who is better to fulfill that function than Jesus? No. No, the one who shepherds us with compassion and wisdom, and justice, and truth. The king, unlike any kings this world has known, right? Kings in our world range from terrible to less terrible. But in Jesus, we have a king whose heart is pure. He's the king who laid aside his own glory so that we can live and reign with him. We have to start here when we're talking about the sheep and the goats because the whole point is just how good this shepherd king is. So worthy of our worship. And the end of the world and the end of me and the end of you, my story, your story, all of our stories, they, they all find their end in Jesus. And let's start there because how you respond to that news will govern how you hear the rest of the parable. How do you respond to that news that, that, that Jesus is the end? Because either that's like the, the, the only good news there is. Or you want nothing to do with it. You're indifferent to it. Jesus is painting a picture of the end of history and saying absolutely everything revolves around him. It's all about his glory. Now secondly, this parable is of course about judgment. In particular, the judgment of Jesus. At the end of the day, the, the easiest takeaway from this passage is, uh, I am the judge, says Jesus. He will bring the righteous to life and the wicked will go away into eternal punishment. One of the things I keep bringing up throughout this portion of Matthew when we're dealing with judgment and our uneasiness with the idea of judgment is that if our eyes are truly open to the sin and sorrow of the world, God's judgment is, is not the worst news. God's judgment is the answer. Because there are no human solutions to the persistent problems of the world because the problem is found in here. All of us in this room, in here. Everyone outside, in here. But it's all, it's all the human heart. That's the problem. Uh, think of where, where do you want to go? Where, what do we need God's judgment for in this world right now? Where do you want to begin? Do you want to begin in Afghanistan? We can begin there. We can think of Christian brothers and sisters who are now exposed and their lives are at risk. We can think of any woman or girl and we can think, man, the vulnerability and how exposed they are to Taliban rule makes our hearts grieve. Racial prejudice and injustice, where does it find its end? Where do you want to go? One of the biggest news stories the past week was the Texas abortion law which passed. I don't think there's been a more powerful grassroots political movement, maybe in American history, than the pro-life movement over the last 40 years. One particular strength of that movement has been a general refusal to vilify um, those who are often also the victims, which is the mothers and the women. 
Often those are the ones who are abused and used, and those are the ones who any heart of sympathy would say, I see why you think that you are in a place that is impossible. Don't we want to live in a world where no woman would think that her situation is impossible and she lives with such fear? Uh, there was a, uh, an abortion uh, activist who was lamenting the fact that, at least with this Texas law that, that's now enacted, you can't screen for Down syndrome until 10 weeks. And this law says no abortions after six weeks. And so we're going to have so many more children with Down syndrome and, and birth defects. About 95% of children who are screened with Down syndrome are aborted. I mean, what a culture of death. What a culture of power. What a culture of, of uh, consumerism. Uh, a culture of, of selfish ambition, whatever, whatever you want to say with these image bearers. Well, now, the beauty of social media, because, you know, every, every thousandth day there's some good things on social media. And it was all of these parents sending pictures of their kids with Down syndrome saying, this image bearer is like the greatest thing in the world. Now, what's the answer there? Like God's judgment is the answer. This world is broken. This world is hurting. What hope does the world have? Where else does, does this suffering and pain uh, find meaning, right? There's always that risk that all of this is just meaningless. Everything you're all angry about doesn't mean anything anyway. Ah, oh, what if it finds its meaning in Jesus? And Jesus being as explicit about who he is as he has ever been says he is the judge. He's basically saying, I am the final judgment. Jesus says, I will be there on the last day in all of the glory and splendor you can imagine as the judge. I will be on God's throne. I will be the one separating the sheep and the goats. Jesus will be the one who grants eternal life to some. And yes, we have to read this. He will be the one who condemns those who are lost to eternal judgment. Maybe we have that nagging question. How could a God of love condemn someone to eternal judgment? If you don't wrestle with this question at all, I'm a little concerned about you. I'm a little concerned about empathy. Because how can a God of love just condemn someone to eternal judgment? Well, let me suggest it's, it's that uh, Jesus being the judge is central to who he is. It's central to his heart of love that he is a God of judgment. The judgment of God is bound up in the goodness of God. Uh, God in his goodness and love and perfection, he cannot be in the presence of that which is evil, that which destroys. Let me give you an illustration. I've, I've heard many iterations of this. You kind of mold it to whatever needs you want. It is the illustration of the loving police officer. All right, so one day there's a police officer who's driving around in his cruiser. He's in the neighborhood where the orphanage is. And he comes to the orphanage, and he sees Mrs. Johnson, who's this sweet little old lady, this widow, who is the surrogate grandmother of this orphanage. And she's got a bag full of treats she's going to bring to the kids. So all the orphans are out in the, in the playground. Mrs. Johnson comes, and the, the cop is just witnessing just the beauty of love. There's their surrogate grandmother. They love her. She, she loves the kids. They're all enjoying the treats and enjoying each other's presence. And all of a sudden, this biker gang comes. And they come, and they steal the treats from the kids, and they slap the kids down. They blindside grandma and put her on her back, and they kick her while she's down. And the cop sees this, and he's enraged. And he turns his lights on, and he's, and he's zooms down to the playground and he pulls the bullies aside and he says, I am the good policeman and I love you. Now what's wrong with the story? Is he a good policeman? Could goodness and love watch cruel evil and injustice and not put an end to it? 
and not bring judgment. He's not a good policeman at all. God's goodness says, I cannot allow the presence of evil. It can't go on. It must be dealt with. And so you can see how on the one hand, God's judgment is all about God's mercy toward those who are victims of evil in this world. If you've been a victim of evil, if you have suffered under the weight of sin, that God's judgment is the reality that he cares. We need a God who gets angry and will protect his children. Don't you want the end of cruelty and wickedness? Because Jesus is saying there will be a separation. It's a mercy to the sheep to protect them from evil. Some of you know what it's like to be hurt. Some of you know what it's like to have experienced human cruelty. And Jesus says judgment is coming. An end is coming. Separation will come. And those who know God will gain a place of security and goodness and love and mercy and protection. Rebecca Pippert writes, We tend to be taken aback at the idea that God could be angry. How can a deity who is perfect and loving ever be angry? We take pride in our tolerance of the excesses of others. What is God's problem but love detests what destroys the beloved. Real love stands against the deception, the lie, against the sin that destroys. So she goes on, anger is not the opposite of love. Hate is the opposite of love. And hate in its final form is indifference. And friends, Jesus is not indifferent. It's his love that drives him to judge. Injustice and hate will not stand forever. Uh, this is a word of consolation to victims, and it is a word of warning to victimizers. And the complicated thing about all of this is that we are both. To some degree or another, we are both. So the warning, the appeal is to come to him. We will all be judged, either by our own works or by his. The one who warns us in this passage is the one who says, come to me, you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The one who warns us is the one whose body would be broken and his blood would be shed. The one who warns us of hell is the one who would experience hell at the cross. The one who warns is the one who would drink the cup of God's judgment down to the dregs. The one who judges mercifully is the one who saves. Let us look to him. Rest in him. Well, what does that mean? It's to confess my only hope is found in his works, not mine. The glory of Jesus leads us to reflect on the judgment of Jesus. And our hope is in our last point, this is where we'll conclude, which is the salvation that's all over this passage. Again, the question for us, the haunting question, what is the basis of this separation between the sheep and the goats, between the right hand and the left hand? Are some of us right to be pretty terrified by the separating work that Jesus does? Was Keith Green right when he sneered at the end of his song, the only difference is what they did or didn't do? And as I hinted at earlier, I don't think that's right at all. It's not because what Jesus is saying is more complicated. It's not because what Jesus is saying is more nuanced. It's not because in the Greek it says something different. It doesn't. It's all here. The issue is that we're not listening to Jesus if our takeaway is to have that fear of doing enough. So let's listen to Jesus. Verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. It's not receive your reward. It's not receive your comeuppance. It's not receive what you have earned or what you deserve, but receive the inheritance. 
An inheritance is not determined by a person's worth. An inheritance is a gift. Now, in our current society, we can think a little bit differently because people will pull their inheritance from their children, won't they, based on behavior. But let's go to the Old Testament background of inheritance. Israel receives an inheritance from the Lord, not because they deserved it, but because God promised it to them. Because God desired them. He wanted to give it to them. The inheritance God gives to his people is pure gift. It's pure grace. Your inheritance is only because, as Jesus says here, you are blessed in your Father. What do you think you could do to earn that blessing? Nothing. It's that you are the beloved of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Listen to 1 Peter 1, 3-4, and listen to how parallel it is with what Jesus is saying. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. According to his mercy, and Jesus has come, you who are blessed by my Father. Why are you blessed? Why are you already on the right hand of Jesus? It's according to the Father's mercy. What could you do to earn that mercy? Nothing. Back to 1 Peter. He has caused us to be born again to what? A living hope and an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Jesus says, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. This is Ephesians 1 stuff. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Why? For the purpose of his will. Why? To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the Beloved. Jesus is saying nothing different here in the sheep and the goats. Receive your inheritance that is prepared. And so why the acts that Jesus mentions? Inheritance is great. We're all on board. But why all of this talk of the least of these? The feeding, the giving water, the clothing, the welcoming, the visiting. Remember the context of Jesus' last sermon. It's about the delay. It's about all of us asking what is taking so long. Where is Jesus? Why is this taking so long? And so what does life look like now as we wait for Jesus, as we cry, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus, and what in the world is taking so long? So two weeks ago, in the parable of the ten bridesmaids, it's, well, life looks like being prepared while you wait. In the parable of the talents, it looks like being faithful while you wait. And in the sheep and the goats, it looks like loving. Love the least of these. Let me offer a a reason for Jesus' teaching here, why he goes where he goes. If you truly grasp the gospel, then these acts make perfect sense. Because what is the gospel? What does it mean for you? Man, it means Jesus reached down into the pit to save me. Whatever that pit is, he reached down into the pit. It's not I was righteous, so Jesus rewarded me. It's not that I was faithful, so Christ kept me. It's not that uh, I did a pretty good job and God said, good enough, come on into my kingdom. No, the gospel is I was hungry and Christ fed me. I was thirsty and he filled my cup. I was a stranger and God welcomed me. I was a prisoner and God visited me and he set me free and he took my chains I was naked and exposed. I was covered with nothing but my shame. But Jesus clothed me with his righteousness and he called me his beloved. 
It's still a word of warning, but it's not have you done enough. It's do you know what Christ has done for you? And is that the love that flows through you? And if you're someone who is fearful, if you're someone who is afraid, if you read this passage and you are terrified by what Jesus is saying, get your eyes off of yourself and look to him and flee to his cross. If you wonder if you have not done enough, if you have been faithful enough, if you have been good enough, if you have been righteous enough, the answer is that you have not and you will not and you won't ever. The sheep have no knowledge they've even done a good work. And the goats get defensive. The acts that Jesus highlights, feeding the hungry, satisfying those who thirst, welcoming the stranger, clothing the naked, visiting the prisoner, they do not determine whether or not you are accepted by Jesus. They are not the cause of you either being a sheep or a goat. They are how you serve God as the needy who have been filled. They are how you serve the God who has made you who are poor so rich in him. They are the way that you serve the God who came into your tomb and gave you new life. So what does loving waiting look like? Man, ministering to the least of these, because we know apart from Christ, we are less than the least. The four in verse 35, right? He separated left and right for when you did these things. It's not causal. It's evidence. This is who you are. This is who you are as those who have the inheritance. This is who you are as part of Christ's family. You take care of people. You have to take care of people. I mean, this is a word for us. I think especially as we, as we think about being a, a post-Christian church, right? Post-Christian society, where do you want to go? We need to look at the pre-Christian church. And one of the things you've heard me say is that the Christianity did not explode across the Roman Empire because everyone was so interested in the doctrine. Christianity did not explode across the Roman Empire because people were so hungry to worship the triune God. It exploded across the Roman Empire because they saw lives that flowed from the doctrine. That's what made it meaningful. And that's why it exploded. Is that our early parents in the faith, man, they lived like they were part of Christ's family. You take care of people. You show mercy. You can't have the Holy Spirit and be indifferent to the plight of those who suffer. If you do, repent and turn. One of the great debates of this passage is, are, are the least of these Christians? Or are they anyone who's in need? And I think it's pretty clear they are Christians. It's pretty clear that the least of these are our brothers and sisters in Christ who are in need of these things. There are family members that we take care of. In Galatians 6, do good to everyone, especially the households of faith. That doesn't mean we don't serve those in need regardless of whether or not they're Christians. What a bizarre conclusion. What a bizarre conclusion. It just means that when you serve your fellow Christians, one insight we have here is that Jesus is wrapped up in them. God hides himself in the needy. Jesus says, when you minister to those in need, you minister to me. And so foundational to the Reformation idea of good works, that God doesn't need one single good work. God is not lacking anything, but, but people are. People are lacking lots. Countless saints around the world lack. And what a beautiful picture of Jesus, the one worthy of all honor and glory, who deserves to sit nowhere other than heaven's throne, saying that he hides himself in the hungry and in the prisoner and in the stranger. 
So the application here is twofold. Man, you can never do enough. Look to Jesus and receive the gift of his inheritance. And secondly, as we wait, get to loving. Get to serving. Remembering such a great salvation that, that, that is yours and remembering God's love for his children. In the end, everything depends on where we stand with Jesus. When we are right with him, there is no condemnation. There is no judgment when we trust in him and the work that he has done. He has taken all of that judgment for us. There's nothing left. There is no justice left to be exacted. It was poured out on Jesus. He took all of our sins into him at the cross. He absorbed them into his being. He endured the judgment so that he might say to us, Come, bravo, faithful servant. Come, my flock that I have redeemed, enter into my joy. Let's pray. Lord, one of the things that we remember as we come to your word is how real it is in, in accurately presenting to us, in representing to us, in showing us the world in which we live. A world where we are all sufferers under our own sin, a world where we are sufferers under the sins of others. A world where we inflict suffering on others. Lord, what hope do we have if we go into ourselves? What hope do we have if it's merely something that we can put our heads together and, and get our hands and, and minds and everything working in the same direction to, to redeem this world? But Lord, we, we don't have that. And yet we are not hopeless, but we have hope because, Lord, you see this. You are the God who sees. You are the God who will return again to judge the living and the dead. And that is a warning. That is a warning to flee from ourselves and to flee from our own righteousness and to flee to you under your wings of refuge. Blessed are those who find their refuge in King Jesus. But, Lord, we do we do cry out for you to return. Waiting is hard. Waiting is frustrating. And so, Lord, help us to be good waiters, looking to your promises, looking to the reality, the promise that you are with us, that you'll never forsake us. As we see the suffering in this world and we cry out, Lord, return. In the meantime, you've called us to love those who hurt and to serve those who need and so, Lord, would we do that as those who are rivers of grace? These beautiful doctrines of God, the eternal Son, taking our flesh, descending into our world in order to save. Lord, would, would, would that beauty, would that message of mercy and grace flow out to our fingertips and into the world? Lord, do a work in our hearts. Do a work in the people of CPC. Lord, we're grateful that our judgment was poured out on Jesus. As we wait, help us to live freely. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for Jesus, and we pray all these things in his name. Amen.